Hello, I'm Laurel Ruma with O'Reilly Media, and today we're talking with Cory Doctorow, who is the author of a number of books, including Walk Away, the co-editor of Boing Boing, and he's also the former director of European Affairs of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, of which he is now a special advisor. Welcome, Cory. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So could you define what you are referring to as the tech clash? There's obviously something going on at the moment, and... Uh, Part of it involves tech, and that uh, shouldn't surprise us because everything in the world has been subsumed by technology. And so, you know, this is one of the the early rallying cries of of EFF is it's not that we're worried so much about whether or not you will have online civil liberties. It's whether or not you will have civil liberties once everything is online. And by the same token, anytime you're worried about corporate power or corruption or um, surveillance, or uh, problems with the electoral system. These are perforce problems with technology. And I think that the, the tech lash is in many ways welcome in that it is uh, abandoning the pretense that there's something different and more maybe noble about, uh, about the way that technologists approach problems versus the way other fields approach problems. But at the same time, I think that it, there's a, an enormous amount of uh, baby versus bathwater happening here in that uh, it seems to me that on the one hand, we're, we're very worried that a small coterie of unaccountable technologists can write code that changes the lives of billions of people for the worse. But uh, it seems like the mainstream of the critique of that won't or can't contemplate the possibility that a small group of people might write code that would change people's lives for the better. That, that maybe the way or part of the way that we hold tech to account is by having our own tech, by you know, seizing the means of information. So a good example of this might be something like um, ad blockers, where there's an awful lot of market concentration on the publisher and advertiser side. And that has led companies to, with, with a fair degree of impunity, just make ads more invasive, more surveillant, more crappy, and more dangerous, right? Because gathering all that data and warehousing it means that you put it at risk of being breached or subpoenaed or in some other way uh, commandeered and then used against the people who you are advertising to. And um, as those ads have become more invasive, we've had lots of different reactions, right? One is that we've had this very welcome conversation about how it kind of sucks that ads are really invasive and how it's maybe not the best thing in the world to, to have invasive ads. So that normative part of it, it's really important. But we've also had regulatory interventions. So we have the GDPR pending in Europe, and we have other regulatory responses where companies are being held to account for what they do. And that's really useful too. But then we have something else, which is code. We have people writing ad blockers that have enabled the largest consumer revolt in human history. It's, it's Doc Searle's phrase for it. And by simply making it so that your data isn't sucked out of your browser, and so that you have privacy when you look at the web. Technologists have written code that has changed things in ways that neither law nor norms could have really helped, could hope to do. And at the same time, has really bolstered both of those projects, the legal project and the, the technical project. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, we'll have a do not track standard. And if you violate do not track, and we catch you at it, we'll sue you. But it's another thing entirely to just say, I'm untrackable. You can't track me. I don't need a do not track standard. I don't need to negotiate with your company anymore. I can just not be tracked. And I think that if there's a problem with the tech lash, it's that it doesn't contemplate that end of things. 
that technologists can write code that counter the worst excesses of the technologists who've written code that are destroy that's destroying the world. So how does that work? So we're not talking about a code of ethics per se. We're just saying let's use code to fight bad code. Let's use good code to fight bad code. So someone like Brendan Eich, who comes along with his experience at Mozilla and Netscape, says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to build a whole new browser, and that's how I'm going to approach it. Is that how you would kind of classify his work? Yeah. You know, I'm using a, a, a framework here that, that really, it's not mine. It's Larry Lessig's. And Larry says that the world is, is influenced by four forces, code, you know, what's technologically possible, law, what's, what's legally available, norms, what's socially acceptable, and markets, what's profitable. And Brendan, I think, is, is seizing on a normative shift, right? We've become uh, more suspicious of ads to try a market intervention using code. Right? He's not asking for uh, a law that says that people who make more surveillance browsers should uh, face damages if the data that leaks out of their, their uh, browsers harm people. Um, he's not looking for a licensure framework that only allows certain people to be software engineers. He's looking to use markets and laws and uh, markets and, and norms and code to, to change the world. That's good. And, and I don't think that we have to choose. I think that it's more like if you can think of an intervention, you, you should try and see which of those things you can bring into play. So, you know, I think that uh, one of the laws that might help Brendan a lot, rather than a code of conduct or a, a, a professional licensure regime, what if companies were held responsible for statutory damages for data that they breached, so that people didn't have to show actual damages, they could just say, well, look, we know that even if this data won't cause me harm today, that tomorrow someone will take this leaked data and merge it with another leaked data set. And then someday after that, they'll merge it with another leaked data set. And eventually, they'll find some way to hurt me. And so just for having collected and retained this, you owe me money, right? You owe me enough money that it's a, a business imperiling or business killing affair. Well, that legal regime would certainly do Brendan well, without having to decide who gets to call themselves an engineer and who doesn't. But, you know, at the same time, I would support a normative intervention that said that um, engineers could be asked to take a pledge, not not a pledge that uh, the engineering colleges threatened to take away your, your degree if you fail to live up to it. First of all, because many of the best programmers I know never went to engineering college and don't have degrees and wouldn't care. But one that, you know, we might we might use to sort the sheep from the goats or the willing from the unwilling. Uh, I've proposed a few of these. Um, the one I like uh, comes in two parts. The first one is we should always obey computer. We should always design computers that obey their users or owners uh, when there's a conflict between what that person wants and what some remote entity, like uh, say a government or a police force or an advertiser or whatever, wants. So that would mean that you know computers should be designed so that ad blockers work. If I decide that I don't want something on my screen, it shouldn't matter that someone else wants something on my screen. I get to decide what's on my screen. So that's part one. Computers should obey their owners. And part two is that it should always be legal to disclose defects in computers. So that if, if you discover that there's a problem with a computer that other people rely on, you should be able to warn them, even, even if the manufacturer would prefer that you not do it or prefer that you give them more time or whatever. That isn't to say that it's not possible to be a dick with disclosure. It, it certainly is. But um, as between someone uh, being antisocial and maybe even causing harm through bad disclosure and giving companies a veto over who gets to disclose defects in their products, I would rather take my chances with people being a little reckless 
than I would with companies being good custodians of bad news that affects their share price for the negative. Do you think that we're kind of looking at this as a, like you said, a, a tipping point with GDPR, Facebook, and the Cambridge Analytics scandal, and the Equifax data breach, as this is now coming into people's collective consciousness, much like sugar is bad for you, et cetera? I don't really believe in watersheds. Uh, as you know, so I don't think that we're going to get a, uh, a kind of like this, this moment changes everything. I, I think that, um, social change comes a, as a result of a series of scalloped curves. So, uh, you know, you have a crisis, right? So like a good example of this would be like what's happened with NSA surveillance. So in 2005, Mark Klein, who had worked for AT&T, walked into EFF's offices and said, uh, when I quit, I took these documents along. They detail how my boss had me build a secret room at our major switching station on Folsom Street. I was to install a beam splitter and to run a copy of all of our backbone traffic into the secret room for the NSA to analyze without a warrant. And that made the cover of the New York Times. And it was really big news for a couple of months. And then it faded. And then we had Bill Binney and we had Tom Drake, who revealed similar things. And then we had Ed Snowden. And we had uh, Chelsea Manning. And with each crisis, you, you get a peak that then falls back to a new normal in the way that, um, say, with climate change, we've had this consciousness where you have a storm or a tsunami or something terrible. And uh, it makes people really worried for a while. But you can't be on edge the whole time. You, you have to go back to business as usual. When you get back to business as usual, though, it's a new business as usual. That new business as usual is one in which the fact of climate change is a little more salient. And when the next crisis comes, it reaches an even higher peak. More people care about it and they care about it more intensely. And so when the crisis passes and the new normal asserts itself, it's a new normal in which the crisis is more salient yet. And that's, I think, how we, we attain change, right? Uh, if you think about the eventual consensus that tobacco uh, causes cancer, you know, you would have had a crisis in your own life. There would have been a medical report. And very gradually over time, smoking became less acceptable. The baseline of worry about smoking got more intense and the ability to deny it became narrower and narrower. That window through which you could deny it became smaller and smaller. And eventually, you know, the scallops reached the peak where now really no one seriously denies that cancer causes smoking or smoking is caused by, uh, causes cancer. For me, the real question is like, it's the race between the point of no return and the point of peak indifference, because there, there will come a time in which the problems of surveillance and technology as a system of control instead of liberation is undeniable. It's already undeniable for lots of people, people who are living in autocratic regimes, people who are members of an underclass who are subject to rampant abuse, people who are in the welfare system where surveillance has become a part of welfare and unaccountable algorithms can literally cost you your life. Um, that eventually will be undeniable to everyone. But by that point, it might be too late, right? We might be so far down the road that the pain we're going to have to endure to remediate things might be more than we can bear in the same way that eventually climate change will be undeniable. But I think most of us would prefer that it arrive before we're reduced to drinking our own urine and, you know, digging through rubble looking for canned goods. And so it's this, it's this race to get people to care about something that is not yet at a crisis that is the real hard problem of social change. It's not whether or not people will eventually care about things because crises manufacture care. It's about whether we can, we, we can get there without learning these lessons in the hardest way possible. Do you see that, you, you know, was, was, you think there was an 
inkling in the very beginning of the internet and the web and how we all connected that this could be used as a force for bad for the surveillance state, for governments. I mean, we can talk about Facebook and Americans having this little bit of um, surveillance state with Cambridge Analytics, but in some countries, as you mentioned, that is every day. That's not a one-off or seemingly one-off situation. So how do we kind of look at the way that technology is built and working together as, as people to actually be those same good people online um, as a majority rule instead of allowing these uh, bad actors to kind of surface continually. You know, I think that that consciousness has been there since the very beginning, really. Uh, you know, there's there's not, no one founds a group like Electronic Frontier Foundation because they think technology is going to automatically be great, right? The, the reason Free Software Foundation and EFF and and other other projects that try to uh, think about the social implications and the uh, you know, how technology could be made safe for human habitation. They were there because of this dual sense that on the one hand, technology held out enormous power to uh, change the balance in social justice struggles and to make people's lives much better. But at the same time, it held out enormous power to make people's lives much worse and to change the balance of power so that it favored the already powerful. And technology has done both. I mean, you know, if there's a, if I have a real criticism of the, the tech lash, it's that it just decides without only one of those things is real. They're, you know, they're both real. Technology is, has given us community and it's given us kindness and it's given us all kinds of joys and, and human flourishing. And it's taken those away too. And the question for me isn't how do we get the technology out of our lives? The question is, how do we make the technology in our lives better? And, um, you know, there's a great uh, white paper, law review paper by Michael Weinberg back from when he was at Public Knowledge about 3D printing copyrights and patents. And the title, it's my favorite law review title ever. It's, uh, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. And I think if you wanted to, like, sum up the attitude of early so-called cyber utopians, that what you'd get is that view in a nutshell. That, that, oh my God, this is going to be amazing if we don't make it terrible. We should do everything we can to make it not terrible. What, do you, what are some of those hopeful spots? What, what does, what's an example of what the, a better web actually looks like? So I think that it's easy to mistake the technology for the effects. I think that Facebook gives us lots of extremely positive effects, right? It lets people um, find communities around uh, uh, rare interests that uh, spanning things like rare diseases or rare political causes that are, um, a, you know, beyond the pale, but become mainstream in, in terms of political opposition and human rights. I think that, you know, the ability to organize online has been huge for LGBTQ liberation. But, you know, the same force that allows people to find one another and organize, even though they can't publicly disclose something important about their identity is what allows white supremacists to network online too. I think that the problem is that Facebook and uh, the other platforms are so large that um, they've become inescapable and they've become kind of permanent uh, dictators of the spaces that they live in instead of being competitors that are trying to do everything they can to uh, improve the service rather than make the service as profitable as possible with is safe in the knowledge that even if they do things that their users don't like, the users will stick around because they're the only game in town. You know, there's this aphorism that if you're not paying for the product, you're still the product. I don't think that's right. I think that like under conditions of monopoly capitalism, you're still the product. 
you know, uh, I, I think that you're the product when Google sells access to you in order to advertise to you. And I think that you're also the product when uh, Apple creates a mobile platform where software vendors have to give Apple 30% of the money in order to reach you and sell through the App Store. And Apple tells the copyright office every three years that they think it should be a felony to, to design and, and field an App Store that competes with theirs. Um, you're still the product in both of those cases. And the thing that they both have in common is market dominance. And, you know, sometimes people think that if you point out that Apple is a problem, that it's because you're in the tank for Google. And I'm not in the tank for Google. I don't want Google to surveil me and I don't want Apple to surveil me. And I perceive that the problems of walled gardens and kind of permanent dominance of network communications are every bit as scary over the long run as uh, massive surveillance, that these are like, these are not, we don't have to choose which of these things we worry about. We should worry about both of them. And indeed, the reason to especially worry about Facebook is it's kind of the intersection of everything bad about Apple and everything bad about Google, right? Apple wants the entire internet to disappear into a walled garden. And Google wants to spy on you wherever you are. And Facebook wants the entire internet to disappear into a walled garden so they can spy on you. What do you see, though, at, at, at people fighting for net neutrality and kind of having these moments of like realizing that commerce is intersecting with their daily activities, you know, are we going to see a little bit more change? I guess that's what I'm, I'm, as you can tell my questions, I'm just hoping for that. What is the light in the darkness that's going to help lead us out of this? You know, will net neutrality be that final straw or it's just another scalloped peak? Yeah, this is a process and not a product, right? So this is not a fight that we fight, win and walk away from. This is a fight that we fight forever because technology is so powerful that there will always be people who perceive in it a means to um, control the people around them rather than give them more control over their own lives. And so this is this is always, always, always going to be the fight that we join and that we we struggle with, and it's never going to go away. And so the right way to look at net neutrality is not, are we going to win net neutrality or are we going to lose net neutrality? The right way to look at it is, what can we do so that we win more with net neutrality and lose less with net neutrality. So the conditions that we're in right now with net neutrality is that a net neutrality repeal is pretty danged unlikely, or, or rather a, a net neutrality repeal repeal. A network discrimination repeal is pretty danged unlikely. It's going to have to get through the Senate, and then it's going to have to get through the House, and then Trump is going to have to sign it. And, you know, we live in odd times, and I never say never. But that's not a thing I'm holding my breath for. But on the other hand, going back to Larry Lessig's idea that, you know, there's norms and code and laws and markets, if we can't get the law on our side, we sure have co um, uh, markets on our side and norms. So, you know, 87% of people have not only heard of network neutrality, they, they want it. That's like the most bizarre thing about living in 2018 that I can imagine, that people care about the intersection of telecoms and competition policy, and not just a little, but ardently and across a huge swathe of the population. That's like, that's completely bizarre. I mean, it is, that is like, I don't know what it's like. It's like the tech policy version of there being vast religious wars over little endian and big endian notation about whether or not you read binary digits from left to right or right to left right? Like that's how weird it is because it's so esoteric. And so in an era in which we are probably not going to get the, um, the government to reverse a pie, what we can at least do and what the Democrats seem to have done is arrange things so that everybody who's up for re-election next year has to put their name down as being either for or against network neutrality. And that gives their opponents a giant stick to beat them with. 
in 2018. And that's a super useful thing to have. And so like, you know, life has given us SARS, let's make some SARS Barilla, right? Like, I, what, what could be more amazing and hopeful? And, and what could give us a more permanent, enduring version of network neutrality than if everybody who lost their seat in the next election could, could be colorably claimed to have, to have lost that seat because uh, they were stupid about network neutrality? Like, imagine just how forceful people will be about network neutrality in the, in the Congress that follows. If that's what happens, maybe we end the ping pong match forever because the people you know, who lobbied the government to take away network neutrality would then be in the wilderness because they, everyone who had listened to them would have lost their job. And so, you know, they won't be able to get meetings with people's staffers because like, it's hard to get reelected without money, but it's even harder to get reelected without votes. And so if it turns out that the thing that you're offering money for is a thing that costs you all, all possible votes, then nobody wants your money anymore, right? So maybe that's what we get out of this. That's not the worst possible outcome. That's pretty cool. And not only that, then we have a bunch of people who are like scared of the internet the way they were after SOPA for about a year. Maybe this time they'll be scared of the internet for two years. And then in three years, we'll do something that'll make them scared of the internet for five years, right? We'll just keep doing it. It's, you know, the, the arc of history is long. It bends towards human, it bends towards justice and it bends towards justice because we sit there and we hang on it and we bend it as hard as we can and we never, ever stop. I love it. There's your ray of hope in this darkness. Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you. I'll see you at the conference.